in the near future, we will set another date for the next new members class. If you've not been through the class, uh, just keep listening. We'll, we'll announce that a few weeks out and put it in bulletins and make that known so you can participate in the next class if, if that's not something you've done yet. All right. How many of you guys have been through a season in your life? And I mean a season, probably not just an event. I think it takes more of a season. A season in your life where you begin to feel like the jury is out on God. You know? I had felt this way about God. I had thought these things about God. And then something happens or something goes on for a long time in your life. And all of a sudden, you may not say it, right? I'm maybe asking this wrong. You may not say, hey, just, I, I, just, I just want to call the church and, and, hey, Lindsay, could you pass this on to all the pastors? Just, you know, for me right now, the jury's out. I, you know, I'll let you know on whether I think God's God. And whether I can trust him or whether he's got enough power to intervene in my life or whether he loves me enough to do that. The jury's out right now for me. Nobody comes out and says that. What says it for us is our fear, our doubt. When you go through that moment of doubt and you fill that in with fear, I mean, you've, you've drawn the line. You've taken out your ruler and you put two dots together and you've drawn the line and you said, this ends up in the tank. This is going to be horrible. Uh, my life is out of control. God, and you begin to feel this way even if you don't verbalize it. God, how, how could this happen? You know, we've gone through this series about God being faithful. God, it doesn't feel like you're faithful right now. God, doesn't feel like you love me right now. This doesn't feel like love. God, if you love me, I wouldn't let my child go through this. Right? You guys who are parents, right? you've counseled God on how to be a father, right? <laughs> I'm just glad he doesn't take advice from me. Um, well, you know, here's the reality. There's going to be seasons where you feel like the jury is out. And in, in that moment, the most important thing you can do when life all of a sudden starts feeling like it's, it's in a landslide, it's just an earthquake, everything is shaking and moving, nothing, you don't know what's going to remain. In that moment, you need something that's immovable. Right? And if you've been to a funeral that I've done, you've probably heard me say something like this. You know, funerals, events like that, they present moments where all of a sudden there's fresh questions about life. A lot of questions. But when you start getting a lot of questions about your life, don't give up on the one answer that you're sure about. And that one answer is, who is God and what is he like? Because God says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, I don't change. So I'm, I'm the same way in your life when life makes sense and it feels good, and I'm the same God when everything is confusing and feels empty and you don't know how to respond. I'm the same God. But I know we don't always feel that way. I know we feel like sometimes a jury is out. We're waiting to conclude who God is. Well, today... In our series, I want to introduce you to the God who is worthy no matter what. The God who is worthy. And I, I can say that because I, I have a testimony here that's a sure testimony, right? You know, you and I are moving targets. We don't always say the same thing, feel the same way. But this is a short testimony about God. And you know, this word faithfully tells us that God is worthy from the beginning of it all the way to the end. Even though life does this all the way throughout it. God is worthy no matter what. And we want to hold fast to that. Right? Now I'm going to need some help today from a couple of Bible guys to help us with this. <clears throat> so we're going, to, we're going to hear from two. I've been trying to just hear from one as we go through this series each time, but we're going to hear from two because one of them, one of them is going to stand on his way into some challenging circumstances and going to say, you know what, 
no matter what, I'm going to believe this about God. Right? I appreciate that. Every believer needs to posture himself that way. The other, though, is going to go on the other side of those circumstances. And he's going to find God worthy on the other side of them. So we need to hear from both of them. The first is Habakkuk. You can turn in the Old Testament. I know we have limited time, but please try and find Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Habakkuk is toward the end of the Old Testament. If you've gotten to Isaiah and the big prophets, you've gone too far to the left. Go back towards the right, past Micah, Jonah, Nahum, and all those guys. You'll come to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, let me just say this first about Habakkuk. Habakkuk is going to teach us how to complain, okay? How many of y'all need some lessons in how to complain? I I know probably most of us do. So this is going to be really helpful for us because I know most of us just were amateur complainers. This is a professional complainer. Uh, He complains before God. Now, that's a little risky. Some of you aren't ready to turn pro quite like that yet. You just might want to keep it amongst us. But at some day when you get really good at it, you can go like Habakkuk, and you can complain right in the face of God. Okay? Well, that's kind of where he's going to go. And probably if we looked at the raw material, he's, he's got cause. Um, Israel has been in this long period of decline. He's, he's writing in the you know, early 600s B.C. So Assyria has come and dominated for a while, and, and there's just been this spiritual decline, this social decline in the nation of Israel that he is a part of. And around him are these really ungodly, terrible nations, right? You and I sometimes, we have an American thought about what a bad government is. When you read the Bible, you get introduced to bad government on steroids. I mean, you and I don't have any idea. We're arguing about what kind of fiscal policies we hope Washington will come up with and some of the moral decay in the country. Listen, these nations around Israel were barbaric you know, they didn't come in and establish a government where you'd get to vote on the tax rate. <laughs> no, they just came in and took from you. They took your lives. They took your stuff. They put you under an oppressive system. And they came back and took and took and took and took from you. And you lived under their dominance. So this has been going on for years. And it looks like they're blessed. And these nations look blessed. They conquer one land after another. They come riding into town. The officials, you know, they're, they're riding in fancy new chariots and they're decked out. And you are the people of God. And you look like you're poor and destitute. So this is where Habakkuk finds himself. And then in the midst of that, as we read today, we're going to find out that God discloses some strategy to Habakkuk. Here's the strategy. God is partnering God's partnering with these knuckleheads to discipline his own people. And so Habakkuk backs away from that deal and says, wait, wait, wait. Let me get this straight, God. You're using people worse than us to correct us? We're not as bad as them. Shouldn't we be correcting them? You're using people that are worse than we are. To cor- okay, we got problems, God, but you're using them to correct us? All right, this is where Habakkuk finds himself. Let's start reading in Verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Right, can you imagine you're, you're, you're sitting before God telling him he's sitting around doing nothing? <laughs> This is, this is a testimony of the mercy of God, isn't it? <laughs> Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And he's not even talking about any of our homes here, our families. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And God responds, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. 
Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come, out, come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. That doesn't really help Habakkuk much. He responds again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. <laughs> And makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Right? here Now, if you didn't catch the ingredients... Here's the ingredients for complaining. And this is like watching Food Network, and this is Habakkuk, the chef today, teaching us how to complain. One, stir in a long season of decline. Find yourself in a season of your life that just keeps going on and on and on. It's not getting better. Just a long season of decline. Add to that what you see going on around you particularly in those who deserve more judgment in your eyes than you do. And they seem to be blessed. Heathens around you. You're struggling month after month. They seem to have a new car in their driveway every other month. They seem to be doing great. And you're wondering, okay, God, what's up with this deal? I thought I was living right. And, and this is the return that I get from you. And then, then, thirdly, stir in a bit of God doing something in your life that you don't understand. God's up to something. And what he's doing makes no sense to you. Right? That's Habakkuk. You're doing what? You're taking these horrible people and, and, and you're working with them? You're in cahoots with them to deal with us? Huh. Okay, so God steps into your life and begins to deal with you in a way that you can't figure out why a good God would do that. Right? Do you see how Habakkuk's having a problem here? You're the God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil, and you're tolerating these people is one thing, but you're using them. How can you do that? Right, you add those ingredients together, and you got grounds for complaining. And he comes right out and says it. I'm going to see what God says. How he will answer my complaint. Because things should not be this way. All right? So we're in line with good company. We're professional complainers. Right? We, we are not alone. And these are the ingredients that typically draw complaining out of us. But Habakkuk's about to end up in a different place. When we get to the end of Habakkuk, we're going to have Habakkuk staring at God and pronouncing his worthiness. So he's going to move from complaining to pronouncement of the worthiness of God. And I, well, I'm almost tempted just to read all of Habakkuk to do this. But in, in chapter 2, God lets Habakkuk in on the fact that, you know, not only am I doing something in your life, but the day is coming when I'm going to do something in theirs too. You know the ones that you think I'm teamed with here? Uh, I'm going to act on those dudes. And it's not going to be a pretty day. So it was good for Habakkuk to hear that, okay, that, that helps, that makes a little bit of sense. Then you get to chapter 3, and Habakkuk says this, verse 2. Oops. 
excuse me. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. And just give you this as a suggestion. You guys, wait, I'm going to mute this for a second. I'm not sure that helped, but I hope it did. Um, that's, that's a great prayer. If you're looking for prayer material for you, that's a great prayer right there. In the midst of the years, God, revive your work. In the midst of our years, God, revive your work. In the midst of what would be deserving of wrath, oh, God, remember mercy. Right? This is a, that's a good posture for us to remember before God. But what he is recalling here, and he's about to go off into a litany of the reports that he knows about God. Now, what he's about to reference is Scripture, the Word of God. He knows about the greatness of God and God's past acts through the Word of God. And he's about to rehearse that for the next several verses. I'm not going to read all that, but you can go back and do that. But that's what he's referring to when he says, Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you. Oh, Lord, I tremble. Now, he's, he's getting an adjustment right here, right? Nothing made sense. He's out of whack. He's emotional. He's distraught about his circumstances. And, and you kind of get the idea that, Habakkuk, have you lost sight of the God of the word? And then when he recalls the God of the word, he all of a sudden sounds different. He's recalling to himself some of what we've been learning about for weeks. Who is God? What is God like? Habakkuk says, Lord, I... I heard the report of you. When I read and I go back and I consider again, oh, God, I tremble. Now, he knows judgment is coming. God has made clear to him, Habakkuk, I'm about to pull the trigger. And when I do, everyone's going to suffer. They're coming down, but you guys are coming down too because I'm disciplining my people. Right? We pick him up here in verse 16 of chapter 3. And to response to this, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. All right, there is coming a day, and he is, you know, the storm is beginning to look off in the distance to Habakkuk. Right, so he is approaching difficulty in this hour of his life. He's been experiencing it, but it's about to get much worse. And he's going to prepare his own heart to respond. And listen, for some of us, this is a huge, huge and important piece of advice. Life is about to happen to you. Here needs to be your intention. Listen to what he says, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now, right, you, can, you can imagine what this is like in a modern setting. Right? We don't have flocks, herds, and things growing in the fields. But you understand, this, this, his whole life, his world is coming apart in the future. He says, yet, verse 18, yet, I will Rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And they put that to music and would sing it. Put this thought for you from Matthew Henry. It says, he supposes the ruin of all his creature comforts and enjoyments, not only of the delights of his life, but even of the necessary supports of it. He resolves to delight and triumph in God, notwithstanding, when all is gone, his God is not gone. Right, the day that he sees coming is a day filled with the attack of the enemy, cities going under siege, crops failing, extortion taking place, a day of lack is approaching him. 
where all these things come into question now. But the one thing that he's certain of is I will still have God in that day. And he will be faithful to me. And he's worthy that I would rejoice in him and I would take joy in him and I would maintain my hope in him because he is worthy. Even if all those things happen and I feel like they're about to happen. Now Habakkuk prepares us for that day while that day is still off in the distance. But if you'll turn to Job, Job is going to talk to us about the worthiness of God from the midst of the storm. Job is going to have something to say about the worthiness of God in the storm and then on the other side of it as well after it has shaped and affected and touched his life. Job chapter 1. I just divided this into some quick thoughts. Job chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. We're going to look at the day of plenty and the worthiness of God. Verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course... Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. All right? what, what we learn of Job before any events that we are more familiar with about Job takes place is Job is a very blessed man. Job is, live, Job is in Forbes magazine. He's on the cover. He's the, he's the greatest man in the East. He is Bill Gates. I mean, he, he is running things. He is the envy of all the neighborhood. But unlike other folks who might be in that category, uh, Job is seemingly a humble man, a caring man. Uh, he's a family man. He loves his family. He's got 10 children. Hope that inspires us. We're good at seven, but... He's got 10 children, and this is a tight-knit family. I mean, they're together doing things regularly. Job loves his family, loves this interaction. He's built himself into his family. He's caring about them. Job is a godly man. Job is a man who's a worshiper of God. Job is aware of the holiness, the greatness, the worthiness of God, and he, he knows that his children's lives could be an offense to a God who is so great. And so he is quick to care for them and to, to bring offering to God and just in case something's happened that has grieved God through his children. So you'd think, okay, here's a man who you, 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 can you find in Job the day of tragedy that's about to happen? Now I say that because some of us, when we enter into the day of tragedy, we want to find in our resume what brought us to that moment. How many of you guys can identify with what I'm saying? You are in a place and you think, okay, what did I do? What did I do to get me here? It could have been this. It could have been that. And, you know, when you compile that list, you're going to find yourself so stinking guilty of everything under the sun. And the good thing is God hadn't called you to compile that list. Because in so many ways, you and I are so unworthy and if you just want to start the process, start realizing anything that God gives me by way of blessing is undeserved. So whatever God does in your life that's by way of favorableness, your resume didn't earn that. So don't be so quick to say, well, that the difficulty is a direct correlation to all that I've been deficient in. Okay? God could be in it, but be careful how you examine that. So it's one thing to find God worthy in the day of plenty, but quickly into Job's life, the day of tragedy comes. Look in verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking. 
wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. All right, now, I, 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 I didn't even want to take time to unpack that. Because to think through what that man is experiencing in this moment would make me incapable of continuing. Can you imagine the loss in his life at this moment? Everything is lost except his wife whose response to these circumstances highlights the loss because she is so severely damaged by them. And Job finds himself in a place, how will I respond to God in this moment? I've lost everything. And how does he respond? Well, we'll see in just a second. Look at, I'm going to get some help from Mr. Charles Spurgeon here. He says, Job was very much troubled and he did not try to hide the outward signs of his sorrow. A man of God is not expected to be a stoic. The grace of God takes away the heart of stone out of his flesh, but it does not turn his heart into a stone. The Lord's children are the subjects of tender feelings. When they have to endure the rod, they feel the smart of its strokes. And Job felt the blows that fell upon him. Do not blame yourself if you are conscious of pain and grief. And do not ask to be made hard and callous. Listen, can I, can I just take this moment to offer to the church a lesson in giving appropriate counsel to people in their day of loss? This is, this is our tendency, and I think it's well intended, but it's just biblically uninformed. Somebody has just lost something huge in their life. And somehow we feel like any sense of grief on their part or lament on their part is like somehow out of bounds for them. So we try to fix them with a Bible passage. You ever done that to somebody? Or had somebody do that to you? You almost feel like you're, you're being corrected for your lack of faith. You don't trust God. That's how it feels when somebody who's going under the weight of the grief of a situation in their life, and then we step in almost the, you know, the little ticker tape running across the bottom of what we're sharing with them is, if you believe this, you wouldn't look and feel the way you do. Listen, uh, not true. Not true. You, you might try and find a Bible verse or maybe not even try and find a Bible verse. But if you do find one, find one that gives permission for people to really experience life and for it to be very painful. The Bible says weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. It doesn't say try and fix them as quickly as possible so they don't ever act like they have emotions. It's okay for them to be under the weight of the emotions. So bring different counsel than trying to turn people into Stoics that is not the method by which grace works. It makes us strong to bear trial, but we have to bear it. It gives us patience and submission, not stoicism. We feel and we benefit by the feeling, and there is no sin in the feeling. For in our text, 
we are expressly told of the patriarch's mourning. Right? Look in verse 20. Job hears all this. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. You can worship God in the midst of crumbling to the ground under the weight of this great loss. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Isn't that amazing? See, in the, in the moment where a thousand questions have flooded into this man's life, there's one thing that he's certain of in this moment. He ain't certain of a whole lot. His whole world just got turned upside down. But the one thing he clings to is who God is. God has been good to me. All that I ever had was because of God. And God is watching over my life, and God has taken it. And there's no accusation as to God being wrong for having done it. Because God is worthy. God could never do the wrong thing. See, that's the one thing that we want to hold on to. No matter what's going on in our life, the one thing you can be sure about, and listen, I can be uncertain about a lot of things, but the one thing that I can be sure about is that God is incapable of doing anything but being perfect. That in this scenario, God is the one certain thing that I know of. He is perfect. He is without fault. God has done nothing wrong in my issue. That's the one thing I'm sure of. And that's the one thing Job clings to. Spurgeon says, after the patriarch had fallen down on the ground, he worshiped. Not he grumbled, not he lamented, much less that he began to imprecate and use language unjustifiable and improper. But he fell down upon the ground and worshiped. Spurgeon goes on says, Job means that the Lord is to be blessed both forgiving and taking, right? right? The God who is worthy no matter what. The Lord gave, blessed be his name. The Lord has taken away, blessed be his name. Surely it has not come to this among God's people that he must do as we like or else we will not praise him. If he does not please us every day and give way to our whims and gratify our taste, then we will not praise him. I mean, let's face it here. There aren't any Job's in this room. There aren't any Job's in this room. Now listen, I know when you and I bump into suffering, that's the book we go to, right? Because this dude is in another league. But most of our suffering is in a much, much less of an intensity than what Job went through. But yet you and I know that we're quite capable of whatever's going on this week. We come in this morning, we have the opportunity to worship God. How do we do getting out from underneath the weight of our lives to worship God? Come in this morning, kind of step off. You know, I'm not really passionate toward God, you know, I'm withholding, I might even be angry, I can't even believe I'm here, you know, covenant group leader, just be happy I showed up, all right, you know what's going on in my life, uh, almost as though, you know, the jury is out on God, okay, I'm here, I'm here, that's about the best I can say, but the jury's out on God, okay, God is worthy, no matter what, and my soul will be best served by seeking worship when it wants to withdraw, when it wants to bury itself underneath circumstances. My soul will be best served by worshiping the God who is worthy. In that moment, God is worthy. Whether he is given or whether he is taken away, he is still the same. And he's the one perfect thing going on in our life. Oh, but I do not understand his dealings, says one. And are you really such a stranger to God, and is God such a stranger to you, that unless he enters into explanations, you are afraid 
that he is not dealing fairly with you. Oh, sir, have you known the Lord for 20 years and cannot you praise him for everything? Right? We, we, we don't want to find ourselves in this critical hour letting a circumstance redefine God. All these years, what we've known about God, the sure word of testimony that we have here of how God has revealed himself. We talk about God's faithfulness and his power and sovereignty over our lives. We talk about God's love. Well, we know these things, and then we get to a moment where that doesn't seem to fit the equation right now. It's still unfolding. Things are still happening. It's not clear yet what this was going to turn into. But the one thing we do know, hopefully, is who God is. Listen, the most important thing in your hour like this is what you know of God. That's the most important thing about your life. And listen, you know what we're tempted to think? The most important thing that we can know about any need in the moment of circumstance in our life is what we know about the circumstance. We do all kinds of homework. We investigate. We find out. We ask other people. Oh, I know this person who went through that. Let me talk to them. We strategize. We vain imagine. Five different things happening. We, make, we just courses. We think what we can do. If this happens, then we could do that. If that happens, then if that happens, we'll do this. And we study the circumstance with our eyes off of God. Listen, in the moment, the greatest thing that we need in that moment is what we know of God. That's the most important thing that we need in that moment. All right, let's move along in Job's story here. Because I, I, I said it, he lost everything. I was wrong. It could get worse, and it does. Chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. After all that he's lost... I don't, know if, I don't know if any of us have faced this sort of one-two punch. I mean, the first punch, he loses all the relationships in his life except his wife. That mean the most to him. Loses his belongings, loses his ability. I don't know how he's paying his insurance with all these medical claims. Can you imagine? And then he loses his health. Now, now listen, you, you want to get a... Let's go to Job here in Job chapter 30. You can stay there because we're going to end up close to that neighborhood in a moment. Job chapter 30. Listen to Job, verse 16. This is what physical ailment felt like for him. He says, now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. The physical dimension of his life. Now, some of you know what this is about. Some of you know what it is to battle in your life, to find God worthy, because physically, you face issues day after day. I, I got fresh appreciation for what some of you walk through in this category. You know, I've lived 40 Six years, 45 of them were like never going to the doctor, never having a bobo, you know, nothing. And then last year, between cancer surgeries and knee surgeries, and, and the recovery from the knee surgery was worse than the cancer stuff. The cancer stuff gets in your head, messes with you. The knee surgery, it just kept me up every night for two months I slept about two hours a night for two months straight. I thought at some point here, I'm going to be an experiment. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be an experiment for sleep deprivation. After I eat my children and kill my wife, they're going to discover something in the frontal lobe of the brain of what happens when you sleep for two hours for two months. 
I mean, I would walk into the bedroom and I'd look at the bed at night. I curse you. You know, because it's like I can feel the flames of hell when I climb into bed. Because I knew, I knew I was going to spend all night long. And you know, there's something about how the time moves at night when you're in bed. You know, it might as well have that slow clock up on the bookshelf wall going. like every second is about a minute and you lay there in bed and and literally for me about every four minutes I had this giant thing strapped to my leg to keep it straight it felt like I was wearing a GMC hood part and I'm laying in bed and four minutes in this direction and I could only move this way to go four minutes in that direction that become uncomfortable to go four minutes in this direction all night and some of you guys you live with chronic ailments And that's what he was living with. Is God still worthy in that moment? Listen, I I have my moments where I'm God, why? Lord, why? You know, I'm, I'm looking through my resume. I'm thinking, what did I do in the past that caused this? Bad jump shot. That's what it was. No. Uh, <clears throat> Spurgeon says, brethren, praise is God's due when he takes as well as when he gives. For there is as much love in his taking as in his giving. Right, this series, I hope you will hold on. You have to hold on to all of it at the same time. So, you know, put messages between your fingers and grab some with your toes. You got to hold all the series together because God is all those things at the same time. So it's not as though we get into this moment and all of a sudden God has stopped being a loving God. I don't know what he is today, but boy, Wednesdays is love day off apparently. No. He's the same God. The kindness of God is quite as great when he smites us with his rod as when he kisses us with the kisses of his mouth. If we could see everything as he sees it, we should often perceive that the kindest possible thing he can do to us is that which appears to us to be unkind. God knows us perfectly. God knows the future perfectly. God knows his intentions towards us perfectly. So he is doing things based in a better set of information than what you and I have. And so we define kindness out of a very limited perspective. God, it would be kind if you'd do this. You know, I think God just sits back and says, you know, if I only knew what you knew, I'd say that too. But I know a lot more than you do. And knowing what I know, it will be kind if I do this. And so God does that. And you and I don't have a category for that to be called kind. So we call it cruel instead. Well, this gives way to the day of silence for Job. Turn back to chapter 29, verse 1. I'm sorry. This thing doesn't like me today. Job 29. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent. Now, have any of these, any of these things ceased for Job? Now, this is, this is a gross misunderstanding about God, but this is how he feels. When the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Now, he's going to walk through the next several verses here recounting the good old days, and it simply is not that way anymore, and he can't figure out why. Look in chapter 30, verse 20. Just saying, God has cast me into the mire. He says, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. Look over in chapter 31, verse 5. And this is where he can't figure out, why, why has this happened to me? If, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, well, 
Well, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot is stuck to my hands, well, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. In other words, if I've done things that warrant these kinds of consequences, fine, I can understand that, but I don't get this. I don't get this. Remember, all of his friends have been accusing him that, Job, you're the source of this. Right? They were prosperity teachers, by the way. They were. Their theology was if you got problems in your life, it's because you lack faith or you've sinned. Right? If you come out of that kind of thinking, I, I'm, I'm saddened for you that you got underneath the weight of that, that a God couldn't be greater than your sin or your lack of faith even and prosper you. That's definitely not the message of grace. It might be a prosperity message, but it is not the message of grace. God finds people who are plenty sinful and full of unbelief, and those are the ones he saves. And the greatest of blessing and prosperity comes pouring into their life in that moment. Can you imagine? Stick that in your theology pipe, huh? That God can color outside the lines that way. That was free. Um, <clears throat> look, look in verse 35, that same chapter. <clears throat> oh, that I had one to hear me. And this is what adds quite a weight to this, this period of silence. All this is happening in Job's life. He has no idea why all of a sudden his life is turned upside down. And there's silence from heaven. God isn't saying anything to him. And I think all of us know what that feels like, right? It's like, God, why don't you burst into this situation and tell me? Just, God, just explain this to me. As, as though if God explained it to us, it would fix the way we felt about it. Or, bigger than that, as though if God explained this to me, I could understand it. I might not understand God's explanation to me. But here's the reality for Job and for us too. Sometimes God doesn't tell us why he does what he does, right? Mark Dever says, in all these suggestions, he just gone through a list of suggestions to help clarify why we suffer. <clears throat> Notice that we are requiring an explanation that meets our limited horizons and personal interests. Yet demanding that suffering have a reason and meaning that fits within the narrow scope of our human understanding prejudices the explanation that can be given. <laughs> does that make sense? Like, I only have a narrow corridor through which suffering is tolerable. And so, therefore, God has to explain it within that corridor. If it lies outside of that, it still won't make any sense to me, and I still won't like it. We all have this tendency. <clears throat> we think to ourselves, God made us. Surely he must intend for us to understand everything all the time. But how do we know that's what he intends? And why would we condemn him if he does not? book of Job teaches us that we do not possess all the facts. You do realize that <clears throat> you and I read Job's life differently than Job experienced his life. Because I skipped all the parts that you and I know so well already. Why is all this going on? Because there was a conversation between God and Satan in heaven. And God revealed what he was doing in that conversation. You do realize in the entire book of Job, Job never gets informed about that conversation. Job never knows the heavenly activity that's going on. He only knows the earthly. And do you realize that can be true in our lives too? That there can be heavenly reasons for what God is doing that you and I may never have explained to us. And that's the right thing for God to do because the one thing we know is that God is perfect. And if explaining to us was the perfect thing to do, well, then he would have told Job about Satan and the conversation he had. That's not what God says to him. But there is coming a day when all of a sudden something is going to dawn on Job in the midst of this in a great way, right? The day of seeing in the worthiness of God. Here's how Job concludes his story in chapter 42. The Lord has just spoken to Job for four chapters.
Job responds, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now, he's repeating something God has said to him. God shows up in Job's and says, who is this questioning me? Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? So God has kind of said that to Job. Job's now repeating it back to God, and I'm not quite sure how it sounded, but maybe it was more like, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? (laughs) Therefore, I have uttered what I, I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. All right, now this is a man using the word wonderful after all he's been through. Something has come into his life that he now proclaims something too wonderful for me. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, question. I had heard of you, but now my eye sees. What was it that Job saw that fixed him? Let me tell you what it wasn't. It was not an explanation for why did these things happen. Now, that's the question in his heart. Why did this happen to me? And God does not answer him. When God steps into this scenario after this man's life has all these questions in it, do you know what God does? This is the answer God gives him. And I'll just start you off. It's a great exercise. Go back and read these four chapters. Chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said this. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll ask you and you make it known to me. Now, I don't, listen, I'm a sarcastic man by nature. It takes restraint for me not to be. But when I come across a Bible verse like this, I learn something about God. Right? Do you actually think? God was in, this is sarcasm, by the way. Do you think God was actually asking Job for advice? (laughs) Get dressed like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, this is the height of sarcasm right there. (laughs) Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have an answer. You have understanding? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, God's about to just go through his resume here. For four chapters, God's going to say, Job, on a daily basis, do you have any idea what it's like to run the universe, Job? (laughs) I'm just going to explain it to you quickly. And he goes from the details of... Do you know who feeds the animals, Job, every day? Job, you know all that water that washes up on the shoreline? Why do you think it stops? That's me. Do you know the big chain of stars that you watch them move in the heavens? Do you have any idea what leads them out, what makes them move from one place to the other, Job? That'd be me. (laughs) Job, where did all this stuff come from? Was there an architectural blueprint somewhere? And if there were one, where would you have drawn the foundation lines for the universe? How would you have drawn that? What would you have anchored it to? I mean, you know, right? So you give me an answer here. And you know what God does for four chapters? He just tells Job about himself. Now, we learn something huge right here. Because what you'd think, what I would think, listen, I'm with you, what I would think is Job needs a wow answer about his circumstances. This needs to make sense to him. He's lost all his children. He's lost everything that he's been successful at. His wife wants him just to curse God and die. His physical body is racked. He hasn't slept in months. God, certainly you're going to explain this to me. 
No, Job, that's not what you need. You don't need an explanation about that. You just need to know me. That's what you need. And listen, Habakkuk stared at these possibilities off in the future. Right? And do you remember this quote from Matthew Henry? He supposes the ruin of all his creature comforts and enjoyments, not only of the delights of this life, but even of the necessary supports of it. That's Job. Job's lost everything. He resolves to delight and triumph in God notwithstanding. And this is what Job learns when he said, you know, I had heard, but now I get it. When all is gone, his God is not gone. You know, the one treasure in this life God wants us to be convinced of that it's absolutely critical and necessary for our lives, it's himself. Isn't it amazing after all that Job goes through, God just gives him himself. He says, Job, this is what you need. You need me. You need to see me. That's what you need. This is the God who is worthy no matter what. At every moment, you can stop and slice that experience up and say, right now, God is worthy. And right now, God is worthy. And right now, God is worthy. Now, listen, for a lot of us, I think we need the Habakkuk application of this. We need to be able to look into life and say, you know, no matter what, I will rejoice in God. He will be the joy of my life. He is my great reward and my strength. But can I just tell you that there are some people in this room who have been through Job's side of this story and they're here this morning worshiping God. This was a hard message for me to think about you guys with. Thinking about the fact that I'm looking at Sandy Riches, who's here worshiping God this morning, and remembering her one-year-old grandson who was shot in a carjacking and killed. He was... Same age as Carly. So he would have been 15. And she's never gotten to know him. She's here this morning worshiping God. I think through Donnie and Judy Bourgeois. I talking to Donnie on the way in last Sunday. He's greeting people at the front door. And he's telling me about one of his son's who's going through a difficult season in his life, a very hard time. Donnie had been visiting with him. Donnie, not under the weight of that, Donnie anticipating what God is doing in my son's life. This would be hard to watch your son go through this. This would be the same husband and wife who had to respond to the loss of one of their sons several years ago. But they are here this morning worshiping God because he is worthy no matter what. I thought of Gail Harrison, who is here this morning, worshiping God after having to bury her son, Kevin, just a few years ago. Kevin was in the youth group when I was a youth pastor. Mary Richard, who is here, worshiping God, having buried her son right about the same time. thought of Gary and Lisa Becker, who I saw walk in this morning, who are here worshiping God, having lost Celia Rose. And she was stillborn just a couple of months ago. And they are here worshiping God, for he is worthy no matter what. I think of Linda Rockefeller.
who is worshiping God and still telling jokes <laughs> while her body is slowly deteriorating from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. I think of Craig Strike Miller. He and Patty came back from Arkansas last week and I saw Craig in the School of the Word class and he greeted me with a smile as big as Texas. And if you've talked to these guys through this, they have not stopped worshiping God through this. As his body was racked with cancer in his back and has gone through some very difficult cancer treatments over the last several months. So there are those of us here who face the possibility that we will have to and be resolved for God to be found worthy in that day. And there are some here who have been through that and inspire us that way. Let me close with this. If you flip through this Bible and you get to the end of it, you come to the book of Revelation and you come to chapter 5. And at the end of the ages, when all of human history has occurred, remember, human history, with all of its death and destruction and disease, with all the disasters like Katrina and the earthquake in Haiti, with all the world wars, where hundreds of thousands died at the hands of despotic rulers. With all the questions about why did all this happen this way? And sin has run its course, and the kingdoms of darkness and light have been brought to a point. Here's the scene in heaven. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth and they go on to sing in a loud voice worthy is the lamb now as we as we sing to the Lord here in just a moment what was it in this moment? At the end of time, listen, all the suffering that's in this room, all the difficulty you and I are facing personally, when you back away from it and you look at the span of human history and the people who have suffered and the tragedies and the heartache, the physical ailments and the problems and disappointments, and we, we ball all that together when we come to this moment right here, 
we say, there is one who is worthy. He's always been worthy. Well, how do we know this one's worthy? Well, what does the Bible tell us right here? He's worthy because he's the one who conquered by giving up his life. You know, the clarifying moment for me in the midst of suffering is Romans chapter 8. Right after God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? Listen, I need to cling to that when I'm full of questions and I'm not sure. You know the one thing I am sure about? I am sure of this. The God who is in my life is the God who came to this earth as a man and took my sin and all the ones that I love upon himself and died in my place. These circumstances may not feel like the love of God, but that God loves me and he cares for me and he is worthy. Let's stand up and sing together.